Today on episode number 304 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Kevin Gannon joins us to speak about his new book, Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Kevin Gannon is the director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and professor of history at Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa, where he's taught since 2004. His research, teaching, and public work, including writing, centers on critical and inclusive pedagogy, race, history, and justice, and technology and teaching. He writes for Vitae, a section of the Chronicle of Higher Education, and his essays on higher education have also been published in Vox and other media outlets. His book, Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto, was published by West Virginia University Press in spring of 2020 as part of their Teaching and Learning in Higher Education series edited by James M. Lang. He's currently writing a textbook for the U.S. Civil War and Reconstruction eras that's grounded in settler colonial theory for Rutledge. In 2016, he appeared in the Oscar-nominated documentary 13th, which was directed by Ava DuVernay. He's a speaker and consultant about a range of topics on campuses across North America. And in that work, he endeavors to bring passion, humor, and interactivity to his audiences. He's also delighted to work with smaller groups of students, individual classes, or selected groups of faculty and staff on those campus visits. Kevin, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks. It's great to be back with you. I have got to meet you now twice in person, and <laughs> I, just, I was saying when we joined each other online today, what a, what a nice thing it is to talk to what I feel like is an old friend. Yeah, exactly. I also very much enjoyed reading your book. I got a chance to read it before its revised version even. I feel like I have the, what's that called in music, the, I don't know, some deep cut or something. <laughs> like right. Yeah. And I felt like very much your voice your experience, all those years of teaching. And I especially love the title and just inspiring us to teach with radical hope. So when you think about teaching with radical hope, what's the one overarching message that kind of brings us into this conversation? Well, that's a great question because these are not exactly times where hope is something that's been bandied around a lot. You know, and so I was, I would joke with people, you know, they'd say, well, what's your book about? You know, I'm writing a book on hope, you know, and after the, you know, 2016 election and everything that's going on, I would just get this sort of long, silent look from whoever asked me that question. And then some sort of embarrassed comment, like, so how's that going? Right. <laughs> yeah. And for a while, the answer was really poorly because it was hard to, to keep in a place of thinking about hope, especially in the sort of radical root level sense with just everything, right, that we're swimming in at this current point. So I've had to do a lot of thinking about what you just asked about, like, what is, you know, because it, it, it can't just be an empty slogan. It can't be just sort of a, hey, things will get better, but we haven't thought about how, but we're just going to comfort ourselves by saying things get better. And so I think for me, what it comes down to is hope is embodied in practice. And sometimes we have to 
to think about it in a way that the the everyday routine, seemingly routine choices that I make, the ways that I interact with my colleagues, with my students, with my institution, with my community, that that is a practice in which hope has to be embodied. Uh, because otherwise, it, you know, the alternative is that it's a practice in which cynicism is embodied or despair. And, you know, I'm not real big on existential crises and I would not like to go through one. But I think even beyond that, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, the line from the Rush song, Free Will. Even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And I think that not consciously deciding to embody a certain ethic in your practice is defaulting into another ethic. And so for me, my practice has to be suffused with this, not just hope in the empty platitude sense, but a real radical sense of hope. In other words, a root level fundamental commitment that sort of suffuses every nook and cranny of the work that I do on a daily basis. I promise I am not going to say too much about this, but my dissertation part of it was on something called the locus of control. Mm -hmm. And that's a construct and there's lots of different versions of it, but that's a construct of how we describe what happens to us. Right. And I see in a lot of faculty communities we've become, and I'm going to use a really judgmental word here, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Some of us have become really lazy, and it ties to what you just said, because it's so easy for me to not have that hope. And then it's all about an external source. You know, these things are happening because right. we don't have the budget we need. And by the way, yes, I know there's all kinds of things we need to wrestle with around budgets, but I can't get that because I don't have the resources or, the, you know, the policy. Like, There's a lot of just this external look at why we can't do things differently. And it's hard to look inward. And to me, I'm part of what I'm hearing you say around this radical sense of hope is it's not radical waiting for someone else to come in and rescue us, although you mm -hmm. are very vocal about things we need to be speaking truth to power. I mean, you've, you've spoke a lot about that before, but I also hear you saying that this has to be looking inward. Am I hearing that or am I projecting that onto you? No, I think that's a good way to put it. But I think one of the, the tensions that I struggle with in that, right, is it's so easy to say, okay, I'm going to control what I can control and fix what I can fix in my own little sphere. But if we're all doing that in sort of atomized ways, then we're not informing one another's practice. And so, you know, I'm a big structures guy. I mean, that's what I study as a historian are these structures and in particular structures of inequality. And so what I'm really cautious about is saying, well, if I'm acting on this ethic of hope, what that means is that I'm disregarding what's happening outside and only controlling what I can control, which is in some ways, you know, a really good strategy to use for sort of day-to-day -day survival and sanity. But by the same token, we can't abdicate our responsibility mm -hmm. uh, to advocate for change and sometimes fiercely and sometimes vehemently, sometimes angrily. But that it comes from a place of hope as opposed to not simple condemnation. Like I, because I have hope, I cannot abide the status quo because I know what could be, not just what, what should be in a sort of abstract idyllic way, but what could be, and more importantly, how we can get there in a concrete sort of way. And so to lose sight of that, I think, Again, it's back to this idea of, you know, what is our practice? How are we embodying our ethic and our practice? And for me, that practice can't just be what's immediately surrounding me and my individual community of students. It's this collective work of higher education in general, of education in general, the students and those and, 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 and faculty and staff who are in these spaces trying to make this thing work, knowing that it can work better, knowing how it can work better but getting really tired of sort of screaming into the void about it. So how do we move beyond just 
condemnation into a practice that we can actually model off of and create change starting in our, you know, with what's in front of us, but always being cognizant of the ways that we might influence systemic change as a result. I recall all too vividly starting out in higher education and the things that I was told around our students, things I was told around grading, even around proctoring Mm -hmm. exams. And a lot of it was, these are your adversaries. Mm -hmm. They're going to try to cheat. They're going to try to lie. If they're absent, we better get that doctor's note. Or if grandpa dies, we better get that funeral announcement. And I didn't question it as well as I would like to say that I did. And you have been a real influence for me and for so many others. Share with us about the things that some of us tell our students and how you see that a little bit differently, I say sarcastically. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, my mantra is allies, not adversaries, right? And so going back to this idea of, you know, we know that there are so many things that are plaguing and troubling us in higher education, Uh, you know, reduced funding, reduced resources, precarious labor, all of these things that we know are so damaging to the enterprise. Students should be the ones that are our allies with us. They are suffering from the effects of those just as we are, right? Yet all too often, we sort of inflict all of that stress on our students. I think a lot of times it's, it's sort of unknowingly and unthinkingly, it's just these are the people that happen to be around us the most. And if you have a lot of free-flowing stress and angst, it latches onto something eventually. And so it's almost a target of convenience. But I think that's really dangerous and really insidious because our students are listening to us always. Like all of our campuses, whether it's a classroom, the registrar's office, whatever, is a teaching and learning space. Our students are always learning. What are we teaching? What are we saying to them? What are we telling them? And so if my assumption, if my implicit assumption is that given any opening, a student will automatically try to game the system, or if my assumption is, is that when a student misses class, that it can't be a legitimate reason, it's, it's nefarious until proven otherwise, my students know that that's how I feel. That's, I have told them how I feel about them. And so anything else I say or do in class, when I say I expect you to act like an adult, but I don't trust you as an adult, you know, that's cognitive dissonance, right? And so if we assume that students are going to do X action if given the opportunity, we're telling an inaccurate story. And from the student perspective, if my instructor is telling me a story about myself that is not who I am, I have no investment in in learning from that person because I don't see that person as as invested in anything but inflicting things on me rather than pursuing knowledge in in sort of a a communal or collegial way. Sometimes I think it's easier for us that have experiences in our lives that we can recall where we did not take school seriously at all. Am I remembering right? You have a collection of those yourself that that you are not always the straight A student? Oh, I, I was never the straight A student. I, I was very much an academic late bloomer. And it's interesting because I think, you know, I was a punk in high school. There were times where I was, uh, shall we say, escorted home by our friends in law enforcement. In college, I majored in partying for my first three years. I, I almost dropped out, finally got my act together, took an extra semester to get my grades barely above a 3.0, right? So, I know what it's like to fail a class. I know what it's like to struggle your first year of college. I know what it's like to be at the point where you don't think you're going to be able to succeed and that you're about to stop out. And I also know that I was given a lot of chances, maybe a lot of chances that other people wouldn't have gotten. And so I'm very cognizant of that. Like, you know, I joke about how I was a high school punk and, you know, I I engaged in petty theft, vandalism, stuff like that. But I'm a white kid living in the suburbs. You know, so when I went home in the back of a police car, I, I went home because they wanted to take me home. I don't have a record, 
right? I didn't spend a night in jail. And so when I think now about what kind of opportunities students have and who gets the benefit of the doubt and who doesn't, and when people are struggling academically, what are the stories behind those struggles and what kind of opportunities have they had to actually have someone in their corner mentoring them as I was mentored? You know, I think that story is different for a lot of my students. And so I think the experiences that I've had have sort of acutely shaped the way uh, and it wasn't always like this. I mean, my, you know, I had to really open my eyes about this and ask some hard questions about my experiences versus some of the experiences of my students. But I think that the experiences that I've had, and even perhaps more importantly, the counterfactuals to those experiences, you know, what if, or what if this hadn't happened? That's really been a powerful element uh, in terms of shaping the way that I work with my students today. I'm enjoying a lot the there's been a lot of people that have been saying the statement that I think it's around politics a lot. So you'll know what I'm talking right. about. Like two things can be true at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. we, we present something as a, as a false dichotomy and it doesn't have to be that way. It reminds me a little bit of what you're saying, where I think if we can look back on our own history and realize we have unrealistic expectations <laughs> as compared mm-hmm. to how we were, we also have some who are on faculty that don't have that part of their past how, you know, how do they then get more empathy for what it would be like? Right. So I, I like to think, though, about when I'm teaching, that I both take it very seriously. And you, you mentioned early in our conversation today about the little things. So I think very seriously about learning names and about, you know, making sure that regardless of whether where we happen to meet, is it online, is it in the classroom, but that they're great experiences for them and the quality I want to bring to my work. And yet at the same time, I'm finding that I want two things to be true. I also don't want to take it that seriously. I don't want to take myself that seriously. I don't want to think that my class has an outsized proportional importance that it realistically couldn't and probably shouldn't. I don't know if this comes to your mind, too. How, do, how can both of those things be true for us? Well, I, I think certainly, you know, we'd all love for what we're teaching to be the center of our students' experience, <laughs> right? And I think, you know, early in my career, when I struggled, I mean, the one area I did do well in my undergraduate years was history which, you know, appropriate enough for a historian. But I have to remember when I teach history now, I'm teaching students who weren't me. You know, my history classes, I was up front, taking notes, listening, you know, engaged in the material because I found it inherently interesting. Even stuff like, you know, tariff debates, for example. You know, I eat that stuff up. But I'm teaching classes that are made up mostly of the people who are sitting behind me in those classes when I was an undergraduate. So if I had turned around in these classes where, I thought the lectures were witty and erudite, and I appreciated all the obscure jokes and references. What was everybody behind me's experience in that class? And so if I'm trying to emulate that class and only thinking about teaching to that front row of idealized students, then I'm not connecting with all of my students. And so that's the struggle, right? Is like, how do we teach students effectively when their pathways are are, are perhaps so far different from our own? And I think attention to detail is crucial because like Jim Lang talks about with small teaching, right? Sometimes it's those small things that, that are levers into exponential change. And while I certainly don't think that, you know, my, my History 103 ancient world class is at the center of my students' academic existence right now, I do think it's important that whatever else may be going on, maybe this is a space for them where those things don't matter as much and this thing does, right? And so for some of my students, the classroom is a refuge. For some of my students, it's an open door. They're not sure what's on the other side, but they're interested in seeing that, right? So I better make sure that that learning space, whether it's an on-ground or an online learning space, 
is one that's appropriate. It is one that is, uh, is a welcoming space, a space that my students feel that they belong in. And so whatever that space needs to be for them at that point, whether it's a refuge, just a requirement check, whether it's something that they're not majoring in, but still interested in, is the learning space one where they can be in that place? And have I, have I done as much as I can, especially with the attention of the details, the little things, the learning the names, the building the presence, the building the connection and community? If I've paid enough attention to that, then it can be a space for students where they get what they need. I have seen you present and I can see you right now and you have a magnificent presence. You're a powerful person. I can imagine that sometimes that could get in your way of teaching because it's hard to when you are that magnificent of a presence to make yourself smaller so that other voices can emerge. How do you go about doing that in your classes? That's something I struggle with a lot, and I have uh, throughout my career. I, I like to think that I've gotten better at it, but I know that there are times where I'm, I'm still either uh, forgetful or unskillful uh, in the way that I manage my presence. My wife, you know, cause she's like, you're just big. You're a lot, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm tall. I'm, as they say on the internet, I am large. You know, I'm tattooed. I have a, a loud voice. I can tell you in the past, I, I really didn't think very intentionally about how, what, how I occupied space and how I presented to others and how my voice sounded in, in groups and in communities. And, you know, I have done my fair share of more than my share, likely, of, of interrupting, of mansplaining, of, of talking over, and just unskillful ways of being in community. And so I'm very cognizant of the way that I take up space and I try to, to you know, my voice is one that can be heard easily, not just be, you know, because literally because I'm loud, but also because of who I am and my identity and what kind of privileges are accorded to me that aren't to others. And so a lot of the questions that I ask myself sort of as a running monologue in my head are, you know, do I need to say things right now? You know, do, is the, does the world need to hear my opinion on this right now? And a lot of times the answer to that is no, right? And so it's, you know, how can I support this conversation in ways that don't involve either leading it? or being a frequent participant in it. You know, there are times where, you know, it's appropriate to frequently participate and, and to offer opinion, but I have to be very discerning about that. And, you know, and with students in particular, you know, body language is so important. And I, you know, so I'll tell a little bit. So, so in one of my, my early teaching assignments, I had a seminar class and it was with students who I'd had other classes with. So they knew me and I knew them. And, and the class was going just, so badly after the first few weeks, you know, it was discussion oriented. It was an upper level history class. Like, you know, we're supposed to be digging in all these really, you know, complex and difficult ideas. And, and I had gone into the class, you know, with this intent to be very intentional, very thoughtful about listening to students, not with the intent to respond, but just to listen and then to help guide discussion, help model discussion in that way. And, and nothing was working. Nobody was saying anything. And I was ready to tear my hair out. And so finally, I, you know, after class, one you know, few weeks in, I, I, I uh, talked to one of the students who you know I knew well, and we had the kind of relationship where I knew that she would be honest. And I said, "What is going on? What can I do? I'm you know I'm at wit's end with this." She said, "Honestly, we're scared of you." And I was like, "What do you mean?" She says, "You." So what what had happened was I was, I'm, and I'm a little hard of hearing too. Too many heavy metal concerts, um, and so <laughs> when when students were talking, I would lean forward. And I would put on my, I am listening intently face, you know, this is my serious face. And I would have my arms folded. And what I thought 
that was conveying was, I am deeply interested in what you're saying and I am listening. What it looked like is, is when a student would say something, I would lean forward, but I'd have the scowl on my face because it looked like I was just mad instead of intent. And then when I'm leaning that way, it, it came across as almost like I was ready to jump in, like right away, like waiting to pounce. And, and so I realized that the way that I had intended to present to my students was coming out in the completely opposite manner. And, you know, so being big and loud in that case, it ended up fine. We, you know, the class, I said, look, this is what I was trying to do. And clearly it was not going across this way to you. So we could all laugh at what a dork I am and we'll start over. And, you know, I'm what, here's what I'm intending to do. And here's what I'm hoping we can do going forward. And I'm really sorry that I look like I was about to jump across the table at you. But since then, that story sticks in my mind because, yeah, it's, it's very easy to take up all the oxygen unintentionally. And I'm sure that there are recent times where I've taken up more than my fair share of oxygen. And I just, you know, it's something I try to, to do better with. You know, how can I use a platform that I might occupy because of who I am and how I look and how I sound and how might I, how might I give some of that space away or let others climb on that platform with me? I think those are questions that I'm continually asking myself. I'm hearing two things from your story. One is that, I mean, well, maybe there's three things, but I always get risky if you list three things and then can't remember what they were. I'm hearing you talk about having fostered enough trust with the people that were in your class that when we all are inevitably going to continue, we're not even, it's not even like something in our past we can look back on. We are going to continue making mistakes in our teaching. That is just a matter of fact. Without that trust that's been fostered, we won't know about it. And then the other theme that I'm hearing you talk about is really a sense of self-awareness around one's presence. And sometimes that can take place in a moment. And then sometimes that also can take place over many years. I am cracking up at your story because if I, I, I literally have a, a almost identical story, except that in addition, I have that same crinkled brow but then if I'm writing notes, because I'm so I'm getting so much out of what they're saying, but they perceived it as, oh, my gosh, look how much she's writing about how terrible I'm doing at this very moment. So I had to really take a little breather on that. Don't try to write it all down. But I li- literally now when I sit down and I'm listening to people, whether it's doing classroom observations for faculty or or if I am listening to students share I will tell myself, you are going to smile right now. The corners of your mouth are going to go up and and being very conscious of raising my eyebrows up because that same, the more that they're challenging my thinking in such a, oh, I never thought about it that way. That's so interesting. And then I also am hard of hearing too. So I'm leaning (laughs) to Mm -hmm. try to get, but it's like the more interested that I am, my facial expressions I know about myself are not matching what the person's experiencing. Oh, that's such a crack up. And it's fun to tell now, but at the time it was just driving me, you know, cause I was like, I've tried every tip and trick to start discussion. I know half of these students from previous classes, you know, what the hell is going on? So it's, <laughs> and I, and then I, the moment, you know, when she said, you know, you're scaring them, you know, them being the students who weren't familiar with me, that moment of first confusion, like, what does she mean? Yeah. The student telling me this. And then the very next moment, just the sinking feeling. Cause then I realized like, oh, and then all of that, you know, coming, crashing down, like, this is how you look to these students, you know, oh my God. <laughs> so it's embarrassing. It's, yeah. it's, you know, I felt really sheepish and, and, and just bad. Like, you know, here we were a few weeks into the course, that's time we can't get back. Right. So it's, it was definitely something I drew a lesson from. And, 
And people, you know, jokingly all the time, you know, in a conference, people will be like, oh, we know you're here. We can hear you coming down the hall. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm constantly reminded of how I take up both literal and figurative space. And, you know, and sometimes it's a power I can use for good, but it's also something that, yeah, it's to be cognizant of that uh, and to and to ensure that I'm not walking all over everybody else and taking all the oxygen in the room is is something that's 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 a, an ever present concern. I wanted to draw one other lesson from your story, and that is that now is not the time to try to cover all of it. That's not exactly what you said, but like I don't I don't have to just because something comes up that I might have something to say about it. I don't have to. And I just this past week had that where we are in a place, I don't know what it's going to be like in April when this show airs, but right now the news is covered with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And I have had my business ethics students that every week when they come in, they put a sticky note up on a wall that's their business news of the week. And about 50% or more of them right now have to do with the coronavirus. And one, we had a guest speaker coming this last Monday. And so one of them is just like, you know, that was it Sesame Street or the electric company when we were growing up that was like, one of these kids is doing their own thing. Right, <laughs> one, yeah. one of these is so clearly not true is i mean I, I just like popped out at me of like oh wow where did you get that from mm-hmm. we have a guest speaker coming i don't think of it as a big deal if i'm in your class kevin and you ask me to put a sticky note on the wall like and if i'm wrong it probably depends on what i'm wrong about but I, i'm i've i've been wrong enough to know <laughs> that i will recover from it it's a way bigger risk mm-hmm for a student in one of my classes to have written something down on a sticky note, their name is on it and it's on that board. I cannot correct that. Like I was thinking Mike Caulfield, if he had seen that picture of these <laughs> sticky notes, is going to go, ah, have I done nothing for you? But you know, I had to choose, you know, this is not that teaching moment for that right. topic. It, it just isn't. Mm-hmm. And that maybe I can kind of save it up because I do think it would be important, but then I don't have to embarrass that one student right. who took the risk that I invited them to do that. But it just, we can keep it in without thinking we have to share all of it. Yeah. So I think that's a really healthy lesson you gave to us with that. Yeah, for sure. Is, is this, is this the battle to fight? And if so, is it the battle to fight right now? Yeah. And, and those are related, but sometimes distinct questions too, I think. You wrote in the book, I had to realize that treating all students equally was not the same thing as treating all students equitably. What comes to mind with you around that? So I think that's actually something that's embodied in a lot of our practice that we don't necessarily think about all the time. Uh, And then when we're confronted with, you know, should certain groups of students or, you know, when we talk about underprepared students, for example, what kind of support do we put around them? And then people will say, well, is that fair? Or should everybody in the class have opportunities for supplemental instruction or for, you know, built-in tutoring or things like that? And, And that's where I get to the point is, you know, our students are coming to us from a vacuum. Uh, and so some of our students come to us from very well-resourced school districts and some of them don't. And when we admit a student to our institution, we are telling them that, you know, we are promising them. You know, we think you can succeed uh, and we will help provide you with the resources and the access to expertise and the learning experiences that will help you succeed in the way that you define success. And if we make that promise to students, that's going to look differently. For different students, right? Just by the inherent nature of, you know, what a student's goals are, what their academic story is. And so if, you know, we can say, I am going to treat all my students equally, and that is fair, I would say, no, that's actually not fair, 
right? Because that's saying we're going to ignore everything that's part of these students' past stories and experiences and assume everybody's at one level now. And so what we're telling students is that, you know, what happened in terms of your educational journey here now no longer matters. And I think that that's a profoundly damaging thing to tell them. So equally and equitably are related, you know, but they're also distinct concepts. And we, we do this all the time, right? Like the students who come to our office hours for extra help, we're treating them differently than we are our other students by nature of a choice that they've made to come and consult with us, right? So it's really not that much of a leap, I think, to think about, you know, equitable treatment. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's a one-size-fits-one over and over and over again. And I think if we approach the work that we do with our students with that sort of mindset, that context-specific and story-specific, then we do well by our students. Would you tell the story about the exercise that you have faculty do where you present them with a challenge and uh, it shares a number of lessons with them afterwards? Sure. Yeah. And so now I'm going to have to come up with a new one because I gave away the game oh. in the book. But uh, <laughs> well, so one of the, the favorite things that I like to do in workshops, and, and I do a lot of workshops on inclusive pedagogy and, and you know equity and inclusion work. And so I start out with an exercise where I tell the group that, you know, we're going to do a writing prompt. So get out something to write with, and I'll even let them use devices, whatever, you know, however you're going to write. And I tell them, you know, in a a minute, I'm going to put a prompt up on the screen, and I'm going to let you read it for a few seconds and think about what you might write, and then I'm going to give you two minutes to write your answer to that prompt. Uh, And then once we're done with that, then we'll assess each other's work. And, you know, because we believe in rigor and academia, it'll be a high-stakes assessment, too. So then I put up the prompt. And it's usually something very broad, like, you know, in your assessment, what's the most important pedagogical principle you use, right? Like, so something very open-ended, but very complex thinking as well. And then right before we start, I say, oh, by the way, your final instruction for this is you must complete this prompt with your left hand. And then so everyone kind of laughs, you know, kind of laughs nervously. And then someone always asks, well, what if I'm left-handed? And I say, you must complete this prompt with your left hand. And so we do it. They write for two minutes. You know, a lot of them get frustrated really easily. You know, I can always tell who the left-handers are in the, in the group because they're the ones that kind of chuckle to themselves. And then so I call time and I say, okay, now we're going to assess each other's work. But before you turn to your partner and assess work, I'm going to put the criteria up. And so I put the criteria up and there are two areas. They're each worth 50 points for 100 points total because it's a big round number and it's a you know, high stakes assessment. And the first one is penmanship. <laughs> and I tell them, you know, we always talk about our students being able to communicate clearly, right? Well, isn't this a great example of modeling the type of clarity we expect? And of course, it's funny because as faculty, we often complain about students' bad handwriting. So it's like, all right, if this is important, you put your money where your mouth is, right? And then the second uh, criteria is word count. You know, and I tell them that, you know, this is a, a really complex subject. It, you know, it needs more than just a sentence to be answered adequately. And then I say, so if there's not at least, you know, 40 words or whatever numbers in my head I make up arbitrarily, then there's no credit for this section, that there must be at least 40 words. And then, you know, beyond the 40 words, you can assign zero to 50 points based on word count. And I say, you know, don't we talk to our students all the time about how it's really important to communicate complex ideas in a thorough way under a time limit, you know, all the skills that we say that, that it's important for our students to develop. And they say, okay, go ahead, great. And of course, no one passes or like two people pass, you know. Most of them don't even make the 40 word word count. And then I ask, okay, you know, so what was wrong with the assignment? You know, and it's funny because some people get really angry or frustrated, like visibly with this because we're academics, right? And it's like, even though I'm, you know, it's completely a joke, you know, some people are like, I didn't pass. Like, <laughs> it kind of ruins their morning. And so, you know, I try to try to avoid 
antagonizing any rough feelings about that. But what I what I ask of you is, you know, what what was the problem here? And so, of course, all sorts of things come up. Like, you know, there are unfair advantages built into this, right? Like, if I'm left-handed, I'm good, and fifty percent of the grade is on penmanship, so I'm I'm pretty much good to go. So there's a structural advantage built in there. If people were using devices, even typing with their left hand is easier to write, and so their penmanship is going to be great, right? And so. You know, on and on with, you know, the criteria have nothing to do with the actual prompt. Uh, you didn't tell us the criteria in advance. You know, all the, you know, I mean, other than that, it's a perfectly designed assignment. I think, <laughs> you know, once you get past the list of like 26 things that are wrong with it. Yeah. But then I put an image up that, that asks the question, it says, you know, how many of our students are experiencing college in this way? And there's a sign on the, the slide, the image that says you are now entering a place of privilege and prejudice. And what it is, you know, it's a, it's a way for us to think about what structural things are baked into the cake here that are advantaging us. And, you know, so are our students being asked to navigate an unfamiliar landscape with their non-dominant hand, figuratively speaking, and being judged by criteria that they don't see the direct connection with the tasks that they're being asked to do. And even the tasks that they're being asked to do seem to have all sorts of arbitrary things like a two-minute time limit, for example. Like... Is this experience that I just put you all through similar to what many of our students are experiencing on a regular basis in higher education? Of course, I think the answer to that is yes. And so this is a way to sort of, you know, bring the point home with a little bit of humor. But it's interesting when I put the criteria up in particular, you know, there are like audible gasps and some people yelling like, wait a minute, you know, so that's always kind of amusing. But I find that that's a way for us to think about you know, structure, inequitable structures in ways that we can have a constructive conversation going forward. And just part of why I love your book so much is just that we're continuing to wrestle with these questions of, and and so we've thought about the hope that we have, we've thought about our teaching philosophy, and then just we got to work it into every aspect of our teaching and just be wrestling with these questions Mm -hmm. and never be done. Speaking of which, (laughs) my last question before we get to the recommendations segment is kind of around that wrestling. I know that after you write a book like this, we keep doing the wrestling. And I'm curious if there's anything that you might have changed your mind about after having read the book or anything that you're still just going, yeah, this is really standing out to me as something we all should be wrestling with. I don't think there's anything that I've changed my mind about yet, at least. Although I certainly reserve that right, I guess. Um, But there are, you know, I think some of the things that I write about in the book have been sort of emphasized and I think reaffirmed in terms of the importance that I assign them. So the chapter that I write on, you know, spaces of power on campus in terms of what I think is largely a manufactured free speech crisis and debates over students' civility. You know, we continue to see purported thought leaders, you know, painting this picture of, of student populations as the PC police and, you know, woke culture gets used as a pejorative and just these wild distortions of the college students who are somehow ill-equipped to handle any ideas which dissent from their own. And my current theory is that all of this is psychological projection on the part of these op-ed writers, because it certainly makes more sense that way. But I, you know, what I write about in the book is that, you know, we need to be asking ourselves on campus, like, Who's getting platforms and who is asked to, you know, in so many words, suck it up and deal with it? You know, so if Richard Spencer gets invited to a university and students of color are told to suck it up and deal with it for free speech, does free speech mean that people who deny the humanity of others, the basic humanity of others, get a platform? I mean, certainly Richard Spencer can say what he wants to say, but does the University of Florida, for example, need to give him a platform in which to do so? And I know that the visit got called off, but I think that's one of those examples of 
you know, free speech is often weaponized against marginalized groups. And, you know, civility discourse is the same way. Look at who is being asked to be civil and who is doing the asking. And there are some pretty consistent characteristics on both, you know, for both elements of that debate. And I think that that ought to be bothering us a lot more than it is in higher education. Um, you know, for all the caricature of, you know, wild-eyed, crazy liberal professors, you know, colleges are, are inherently, I think, very conservative institutions. Conservative in the sense that the narrative of the, the established narrative of the powerful and the privileged is what predominates and efforts to push back against it, to use your idea of the halo effect, often assume sort of an outsized menace right off the bat, that the knee-jerk reaction is, whoa, we need to shut this down. And I wonder why that is. And I think that, that there are some folks, you know, certainly in, in you know, upper administrative levels who need to be asking themselves that question. You know, why is this my reaction? Why am I so invested in free speech for a certain type of people? And what about the students' right for free speech? You know, who gets to be human? Who gets to be heard? Who gets free speech and who has to listen to the free speech of others? That, you know, free speech really means that the institution of which you are a part is giving a platform to someone who is questioning your basic rights and humanity. And so the expectation is, is that you are to be civil and you are to tolerate these ideas because we are a marketplace of ideas and this is how the discourse works. And I don't think learning can take place when students are being told, you know, either implicitly, explicitly, or both, that they, they are not human or fully human, that their humanity is not recognized. I think we cannot expect students to learn or to buy into what we're selling if we're not willing to concede their basic humanity. And I think if you went to an administrator and said, look, you know, why are you looking at some of our students as subhuman? They would be horrified and say, well, you know, but this is the message you're sending, you know, by creating this sort of space, you know, the marketplace of ideas in term, you know, just like a genuine free market doesn't exist. You know, there are structures of inequality everywhere. You know, there are people who have platforms and people who don't. And, you know, it seems like the people who have platforms are given bigger platforms. And then when people push back against that enlargement of platforms, their platforms are taken away. Uh, and so if it was a real marketplace of ideas, and then ideas would fall on, you know, rise or fall on their own merits, right? But if you have someone coming in talking about white supremacy based upon what we know are scientifically inaccurate theories about race, you know, that there are biological genetic inherent differences that map onto racial categories that we use. And we know that that's not true, but we wouldn't invite a flat earther to come give our geography lecture, right? We wouldn't invite an alchemist to teach our chemistry lab, yet somehow a white supremacist gets a platform in a university and it's not seen as the equivalent of those things. And I think that that's a really interesting distinction to ask ourselves why, you know, why that's the case. And why might so, even if people will say they disagree with the Richard Spencers and the Milo Yiannopoulos and the Charles Murrays of the world, fine, but why so much solicitude paid to giving them a platform to advance what you think of as the discourse? Because to me, that doesn't all make sense. This is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations, and I'd like to recommend your book. It's called Radical Hope, a teaching manifesto, and it is representative of decades of your life. And actually, Jose Luis Wilson, it's it's on the very, very front cover. He says, and I don't think it's an over oversell by any stretch of the imagination. He says, a must read. This work isn't about reform, but transformation. 
And I just think he said so much in so very few words. And that's the, why I'd like to recommend that people pick it up. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And, but it's pretty easy to, to find in all of your booksellers that you might have access to. So I, I just want to really recommend that people pick it up. It is a just a wonderful read. It's very personal, but of course, well-researched too. And I got so much out of it. And I just feel like it's, a, it's really representative of, of what you have to offer to help us challenge ourselves to have this radical hope. And as you said earlier, to do that in solidarity with one another and, and not to try to think it's just all about our little classrooms, but that we're really, this is a much, much bigger conversation. And that gives me big hope too. And I'm so glad you were here today. And I get to find out what your recommendations are today for the show. Well, thank Yeah. And thank you for those kind words uh, about my book. I'm glad it resonates in that way. And I'm extra glad that the idea of solidarity is what comes out of that. I mean, because you know, really hope embodied in practice is best done as a community as opposed to atomized individuals. And so I'm really glad that that's what resonated out of that. You bring up Jose Luis Wilson, who's one of my edgy heroes. I've never met him in person. I'm a big fan of his work. We get to meet at Digital Pedagogy Lab this coming summer. So I'm totally stoked about that. But when he agreed to write something about the book, it was just like I fanboyed everywhere. Like, I think I sent an all caps email to my editor like, this is great. And so his book, actually, this is not a test. Jose Wilson's book published through Haymarket Press, a collection of his essays, again, sort of deeply personal, resonant with, you know, his, his students, his school, himself, his world. Just one of the best books on teaching and being that I've read. Uh, so if, if you haven't read that book, this is not a test. I highly recommend it. it, it it's a very energizing and, and inspiring book. Currently, I'm, I'm doing a lot of thinking about you know, equity and inclusion uh, and, and working with students. And I'm a historian of race and racisms anyway by training. And so the book that I've really enjoyed reading and was happy when it came out and have been using in a lot of my faculty development is Cindy Kernahan's book, teaching about race and racism notes from a white instructor and you know full disclosure it's in the same series that my book is in so this may feel you know a little bit kind of insider trading or something like that but <laughs> but Cindy she came to our campus actually as the book was in progress and one of my deans swears up and down it's the best faculty development experience he's ever had and she just did a wonderful work with us thinking through you know teaching about race teaching about racism and then some of the ways that things like implicit bias and microaggressions really shape a community of teaching and learning. So her book, you know, written in a, in a very sort of humane and personal way, but also based on really solid research. Um, Cindy's a social, social psychologist who studies racism. So that's a book I would recommend as well, teaching about race and racism, notes from a white instructor. Thank you so much for both of those recommendations. I feel silly telling you this, Kevin, but I knew that Jose was going to be at the Digital Pedagogy Lab, and I sort of have been a fangirl myself of his work, and I was so excited that I'll see that, him there, but I didn't realize that I'll get to see you there. I didn't, I, somehow I missed that, that you'll be yeah, there. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to be offering a track on decolonizing education, okay. uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Um, I'm acutely aware of my own positionality as a white settler dude talking about decolonization, but I'm hoping that we're able to do some really good work together and that it's a space that we can, you know, ask a lot of tough questions about the structures in which we're embedded and often complicit. Uh, and Digital Pedagogy Lab is a great place to, to have those kind of conversations. So people who are listening out there, if you're, if you're looking for just a, a very inspirational and energizing uh, development opportunity, Digital Pedagogy Lab is a wonderful community. 
Kevin, thank you so much for coming back on Teaching in Higher Ed and just for the book and for all the ways in which you do help us all operate more in solidarity and challenge ourselves to just keep getting better at this and having radical hope. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's great to be back with you. Thanks once again to Kevin Gannon for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I enjoyed our conversation and hope that even more people will have a chance to get their book in your hands. If you want to join Kevin Gannon over on Twitter, he's at Tattooed, the Tattooed Professor. I'll actually have it in the show notes because I think I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> anyway, that's why we have show notes. So you could go over and look at them at teachingandhighered.com slash 304. You can see his bio there and also have a chance to connect with him on social media. That's also where you can find more information out about my new book, The Productive Online and Offline Professor. It's right there on the homepage. And you can also subscribe to our weekly update. There are all kinds of things you can do. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.